Bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. I guess I always knew that if you hang around long enough, you're going to have to have this conversation. I remember, because I was doing a radio show back then, the initial controversy involving the building of then Miller Park. And if you were around in the mid-1990s, you will remember it as well. It featured all sorts of drama. It featured... Some interesting comments like Tommy Thompson giving a speech up north saying, hey, yo, stick it to people in Milwaukee. Not one of the governor's finer moments. It involved a, a late night session where ultimately one state legislature, George, state legislator George Petak um, from Kenosha, ended up changing his vote. He ended up uh, losing in a recall election. But ultimately, Miller Park got built. The cost to the taxpayers of Miller Park, by the time all is said and done, this five-county sales tax was about 600 plus million. Some people suggest when you factor in other things was actually more, but let's say 600 million. In 2004, the Selig family sold the brewers to the, the group headed by the current owner, Mark Atanasio. The purchase price for the brewers in 2004 was two, and I'm just going to give you kind of the background of these numbers because that's the framework what we have to put in place to have a candid conversation of where we are today. So the ownership group headed by Atanasio purchased the brewers for $223 million. The current estimated value of the brewers is $1.22 billion. So, you know, if you do the math, um, in, in the last 18 or 19 years, the value of the brewers has multiplied, has appreciated fivefold. So that's a pretty darn good return on investment. It's one of the reasons why I always say when I ha- hear these sports f- owners of these sports franchises who, who, I don't kind of plead poverty. Oh, we lost money this year. The, the, the year to year operations are almost immaterial because there's only so many professional sports franchises to go around. And at the end of the day, where the ownership groups get their payouts is when they turn around and and they sell. I mean, the same thing is true. You, you see this going on with the Milwaukee Bucks, where the ownership group purchased it for what, like four hundred and some million dollars, and now the value is estimated to be one point two billion. You've got um, Mark Lazary, one of the owners, looking to sell his interest. He he's going to make a ton of money when he sells his interest. So the the year-to-year operations, well, you know, yes, you always want to have a net return. But for the ownership, it's like saying, okay, I, I have a house, and I, I bought the house for 250000 and I know in a couple years I'm going to be able to sell it for a million dollars, and I, I had to put a new roof on the house. Well, yeah, yes, you had to shell out money to put the new roof on the house, but your investment is appreciating and appreciating. I bring this up simply to make the point that the, the brewers are not a poverty project, and 
um, in the last year before the pandemic, I think they had a net return of like $66 million. So they're, they're not a poverty project. Having said that, and this is what we're really going to have to have as a discussion, there, there's no question that the brewers are also a huge asset to southeastern Wisconsin. So what's going on now is the brewers, in order to stay in Wisconsin, what they want is they want a continuing commitment from the state to invest, that's the word Tony Evers uses, or or spend money on uh, continuing the upkeep of the stadium. Right now, there's about $80 million kind of left over from the, the sales tax that will be put to that. But um, Evers is proposing, as part of the budget, that we take some of the state surplus, $300 million, rounding up, and we just pay that out immediately um, and commit that to repairs, as opposed to doing a, a bonding thing where you'd have to pay, you know, you by bonding, you'd have to pay interest, but you wouldn't have to come up with all $300 million at once. Evers says, let's just take the $300 million and let's just spend it now so that we have this in a fund so that the upgrades are available. But the point is, Evers wants to invest, that's his word, $300 million more to keep the brewers here. And as a condition of paying that $300 million plus the other $80 million is there, the brewers would have to agree to stay at the stadium until uh, 2042 or so. Right now, the lease pretty much commits them here for another seven or eight years. So that that's the issue. The Republicans in the legislature aren't necessarily happy because Evers just dumped this in the budget, saying let's pay for this up front on the surplus. But that, whether it's being paid for directly out of the surplus or whether the better way to approach this is by you know bonding and paying interest on it and, and only putting out the money you need when the improvements need to be done. You know you can argue about that, but it doesn't get around the fundamental question, which is, are the brewers worth a continuing investment in that stadium to the tune of three or four hundred million dollars? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. This would not be a five-county sales tax, which was used to fund it in the first place. This would just be state money, either in the form of coming directly out of the surplus or instead some bonding you know, moving forward. But I guess the question becomes, should we put another 300-plus million dollars into improvements in the stadium in exchange for keeping the brewers here for longer. Are the brewers worth it? That's the fundamental question that we need to grapple with. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think? We discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff. I am a 20-pack season ticket holder and have been for several years. My wife and I have been to every Major League Baseball park, so I'm not coming from the perspective of someone who hates baseball. However, there is no way that I would be in favor of giving roughly $300 million for stadium updates. The owners purchase these baseball teams based on 
the appreciation, yet they pay little or nothing for the stadium or the stadium's upkeep. It seems like the expectation is for the taxpayers to provide the resources that allows even further appreciation for the baseball team. Ridiculous. Baseball owners always used to threaten that they would move the team if they don't get all the financial incentives they work. I don't think that that's any longer the case as fewer and fewer cities, except maybe Las Vegas, are begging for a team and are willing to cover the cost of providing a spanking new stadium. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I think it would be prudent to use some, but not all of the proposed $290 million to help maintain and improve American Family Field without borrowing or creating a new tax. Yeah, a new tax is a non-starter. But in that conjunction, the brewer's rent needs to get raised substantially to much better cover ongoing maintenance, and the stadium district promotes many more non-baseball events to help enhance revenue. It needs to be a package of several simultaneous strategies. Let's start with Sam in McHenry. Sam, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, how you doing today, Jeff? Good. What do you think? I've long argued. You know, that, that first email you, or the text you read was beautiful because I've long, you know, I would add to that, that, you know, the professional sports, I don't care what it is, baseball, basketball, and it's just a big shakedown of the taxpayers. Now, these teams have been around for so long. They should have developed the revenue now to take on what the taxpayers built for them and leave us out of it, and they can pick it up and run with it. You know, if you want to start a business tomorrow, Jeff, you have to go out and lease a place, rent a place, buy some property, whatever you got to do to get your a place to run your business. You don't have everybody else just throwing money at you. And this has been well, going Sam, on for well, wait, years. Sam, no, but Sam, let, let me stop you there. I mean, you, you say that, but that, that's that's the current, that, that's what goes on currently. I mean, you look at the tax incentives, the tax districts and things like that, that just as, for example, Milwaukee has been creating in order to get some of the companies to move there. So, I mean, government has been, quote-unquote, investing. That's the term Evers uses. I mean, putting up money to give companies financial incentives to move. You know, you're right about that to a point. But, you know, when it comes to these stadiums, we're pretty much picking up the whole tab. These players are making a lot of money, ungodly amounts of money. They got enough money for themselves, their kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids. At some point, you got to turn around and say, okay, guys, you know, every other business person has got to take care of their own infrastructure. These stadiums are built. They're up and running. You think by now they could just pick it up and run with it with all the money they got coming in? That's my point. They're, they're just yep. keep running into taxpayers and saying, you got to pay for this quality of life thing all the time. And I think okay, thanks. No, I get it. No, thanks for calling, Sam. No, and I, I appreciate it. And, that, and that's, that's why I want to have the, this conversation because, see, I guess – Look, let me give you my biases. I am a baseball fan. I have a 20-pack of season tickets that I pay for out of my own pocket and have for several years. I probably go to more games than that. I'll pick up some tickets to the station. They are, of course, you know, we're we're the flagship station for the Brewers. So that's all the disclosure. I guess what I have argued all along is that I believe – there's no question in my mind that if we did not build Ben Miller Park, the Brewers would have relocated. And there's no question in my mind that having the Brewers in southeastern Wisconsin over the last, you know, 20 plus years has been a net financial asset in terms of 
um, for 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 the region in terms of you know bringing people into the region and just whatever value you want to attach to having Major League Baseball. And I think there is a value to that. Guess the question though, and and the Brewers honestly have done very very well. I mean, let's that's that's why I was you know pointing out the appreciation of the franchise and the fact that you know you spend two hundred twenty million and then eighteen or nineteen years later you you can sell it for you know one point two five billion. There's been a very very good return on investment i guess my question though and the issue is if if you don't continue to make these investments and then then prompts the brewers to leave what you know what, what do you do with that space is is it worth continuing to pay the money to keep baseball here and all the attendant of good things that come with it and that's really the fundamental question are the brewers worth it no matter how you want to define it 855-616-1620 let's talk to dennis in union grove dennis you're next hello hi how are you i'm good what do you think i don't well the average taxpayer makes no money off the brewers unless you bet on the games and uh, maybe this could be tied to zero state income tax. Oh uh, well, th- yeah. Well, I mean, thanks for call. Well, I mean, when you say the, the you say the average taxpayer makes no money on the brewers. That that's that that's certainly not true in indirectly because there, there's all the businesses that operate at American Family Field and, and they all pay taxes. Um, if you have you know people that are coming to the games and they're stopping at the the bars and the restaurants around the the area and they're buying things you know those those restaurants are are paying sales tax through the people so i mean if if you mean directly do the brewers send out you know checks to the the taxpayers no but there is i, I mean i think in fairness and i'm trying to be fair in this discussion there is an economic value to to this I guess the question becomes, what is it worth, and and what does southeastern Wisconsin look like if we don't make the improvements to keep the brewers here? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Brian in Racine. Brian, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? I think that, I mean, first off, I'm not a baseball fan, and I really don't care about the brewers one way or the other but that being said i understand what the financial impact of them being here is to southeast wisconsin so what if they took the money some of the money from the surplus and bonded it out like you said and then used some of the money to put it into making milwaukee a little bit safer so that when people want to go to the brewers game they don't have to worry about getting carjacked or mugged or having their car stolen because they went to a restaurant before or afterwards. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm uh, th- Brian. Thanks for the call. Look, I I, I am all in favor uh, of taking some. First of all, th- this the reason we have a surplus is because we pay too much in taxes. I, I think the first thing that has to be done with the surplus is a good portion of that should go back to those of us who overpaid taxes. Then you can start talking about doing the rest. As far as, as making the fundamental investment in, in the brewers, though, and, and I understand this is perhaps some circles, it's not a popular p- opinion, but I think 
dollars and cents wise, I continue to believe that the brewers are a net, having the brewers in southeastern Wisconsin are a net positive for southeastern Wisconsin. I, I think the value of what they bring exceeds certainly exceeds you know what they've been asked what what the taxpayer's been asked to pay for so far having said that i also appreciate that there needs to be some way to do this in a fair capacity and that's why i I admit i'm having trouble getting over the fact that the brewers for the brewers owners it has been a very very successful stint and i I think the brewers have in general been well managed over the last decades a couple decades but but their net worth has increased dramatically. So I think the team really needs to be willing to work with the legislature and the governor to figure out an equitable way to make sure we, we keep Miller Park up to date. Look, you don't want, you know, we, we, you have the, this park that is now pushing like 20 years old. You don't want this to get into a situation where it ends up getting decrepit and things like that. You want to continue to make improvements because Miller Park is American Family Field now, is publicly owned. Oh, that's the other thing. American Family Field, you know, the Brewers, Miller Park, the naming rights were about $40 million. That went exclusively to the Brewers. American Family Field, my understanding is the naming rights are a lot more than that. That that went to the Brewers. So there are all these avenues of revenue the Brewers get that you know contribute again to their bottom line do i think we're going to need to do something to keep them here yes i i do is this the best way to go about it i'm not sure of that is this the right dollar amount i'm not sure of that either let me just tell you up front i I am having flashbacks to 1995 and 1996 the, a commitment for hundreds of millions of dollars more for the brewers it is not it's not a slam dunk with with the populace and um it, it again it involves a lot of stuff including out of state lawmakers let me just share with you before we go to the news just a random sampling of some of the the texts that are coming in and we're being swamped here jeff you bring up some good points about businesses in milwaukee area profiting from the brewers but i'm not convinced the taxpayers in Man- the manitowoc area they don't profit anything i don't think businesses in the far north of the state like superior profit anything at all jeff the brewers should have figured out by now how to sustain themselves wonder what other cities do seems sad that they can always threaten to leave to get more money from the government. Jeff, I can't believe we would want to give millions to a billionaire. The management ownership, I should say, of the brewers have made millions in profit. They have a team that is worth more than three times what they paid for it, actually probably five times. So why don't they take out a big home equity loan and pay for their own improvements? Um, Jeff, I think we need baseball, period. The brewers give back to the community and help generate revenue. I work part-time at X-Golf. It draws people to the stadium for the experience. Jeff, I'm in favor of doing what it takes to keep the brewers in Milwaukee. Can you imagine Milwaukee without the brewers? My answer is is no. Um, I, I can't. Jeff, people often forget that the athletes pay tax where they play, so the state of Wisconsin collects income tax from all the players. With today's salaries, that's tens of millions of dollars annually to the state. Jeff, keep the brewers. Jeff, the larger problem is bad politics, no common sense in budgeting. Governor, lead with spending our surplus money on public safety and tax, and then return the rest of the surplus to us. Jeff, I can't imagine the city without the brewers. I know they are good for a 10 to 15% boost to our business in fresh meat sales and in deli sales 
alone. Um, Jeff, the brewers are worth keeping, but Tony Evers should also give the taxpayers money back from the surplus he is sitting on or from overtaxing Wisconsinites. I think the governor, actually, the, the, the political mistake he's making here is by conflating the surplus with the, the payments to the brewers because then then it becomes a question of, okay, what do you do with the surplus? And a lot of people say, hey, the surplus is, is money that we overpaid. It should go back to us, and, and you want to give it to you want to give it to the, the stadium to benefit the brewers. I think politically approaching it that fashion is a mistake, which isn't to say that I, I want to see the brewers leave. And I think ultimately there's got to be a way to figure out how to continue to keep the stadium updated and keep the brewers here. <laughs> One of our texters on the subject of the Brewers said, well, he said, here's my message to Governor Evers. He said, hey, my, my business needs a few more trucks. I mean, I create jobs. You know, I, I pay taxes. Tony, where, how about that money for my trucks? Well, I think I understand where some people are coming from in that regard. Hey, Tim, this is we are one week away from the primary election. And, you know, we've talked a lot and we'll continue to talk a lot about the state Supreme Court race, which is a race that everybody gets to vote in in the city in the state of Wisconsin. But there is there's a primary election and there's something really interesting going on. And it, it, just, it highlights something that the Democrats have been doing for Oh, the last couple election cycles. And I, I just wonder if Republicans are smart enough or aware enough to, to catch on to this. Now, this is the election that's held to it's um, it's to replace long serving um, state senator Alberta Darling, who stepped down a couple months ago. This happens to be the the Senate district that, that I live in um, the the Senate district. It's essentially the the very liberal north um side of Milwaukee, the, the suburbs, the Milwaukee metro suburbs. But then it's also, it's Osaki County, it's Washington County, it's um, a, a portion of Waukesha County. It, it's a conservative-leaning district, but it's got a, a liberal voting base. Two of the three state representatives who represent the area, and that's how it works, every state Senate district embodies three assembly districts. Two of the three are, are Republicans. So it's a Republican-leaning district. It should be a Republican-leaning seat. There's one Democrat who is running unopposed, and there are now three um, Republicans that are running. There were a couple more, but a couple of them dropped out. The three that are running are Thienesville Village President Van Mobley, and then you've got uh, the two state representatives from the area, Janelle Brandgen and Dan Canodal. Let me see how I can say this. Um, Brandgen is a kook. She's one of the people that's been either the election denier sort of stuff, um, very, very polarizing. She was tossed out of the Republican Assembly caucus. She she would be uh, very, very closely aligned with uh, some of the the very worst aspects of the the Donald Trump campaign. Um, So I, I think. She would clearly be, and I think it's almost impossible to to argue this, she would clearly be the weakest of the three candidates were she to emerge from, from the primary. So it's interesting because I'm looking at a mailing that was sent out, and the mailing, it features Janelle Brandigan, and it features Donald Trump. 
And it quotes Donald Trump. It says, okay, vote on February 21st. The people of Wisconsin are lucky to have a strong and great leader like Representative Janelle Brandigan. Um, and it's got a link. Here's what Donald Trump says about Janelle Brandigan. Save America. Okay, so you would look at this, and this is clearly an effort for the people who love Donald Trump to try to get them to you know, vote in the primary for Janelle Brandigan. Okay, all right. Here's the interesting thing. Would you like to guess who has paid for this mailer? And your first two don't count. This is paid for by the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. So the Democratic Party of Wisconsin is sending out mailers trying to encourage people to vote for Janelle Brandigan in the primary. And it's specifically tied to, hey, you know, if you know, she, she would be Donald Trump's candidate. All right. Now, again, three guesses, but the first two don't count. Why is the Democratic Party trying to tout this particular candidate of the three choices that are there? Well, let's think about this. Is it because they want to see her elected? No, it's because they know that were she to be coming out of the primary, that she would be cannon fodder. She is in what should be a Republican Senate district. She would be the one most likely to lose. So they are out there actively playing on the Republican side, trying to encourage people to vote for her so she would emerge and then presumably lose. That, that tells you all you need to do. Now, this is a strategy that the Democrats have been using for at least the last couple election cycles where they, they try to split the Republican Party. They go in, they identify the candidate that they think is the weakest, and then they try to support that candidate, encourage conservatives to support them in the primary. So when you have the general election roll around, their candidate, the Democratic candidate, will be able to to stop them. And they did it with remarkable success in 2022, where you had, at least in a couple states, that should have been GOP pickups in the Senate, but for the fact that the Republicans picked some of the worst candidates imaginable, but some of that came with support from the the Democrats who were playing in the Republican race. It's not just this this state Senate race that you're seeing that. You're also seeing it in the Supreme Court race, where it's not Democrat-Republican, but it's liberal-conservative. Liberal activist groups understand that if Jennifer Doro, the Waukesha Circuit Court judge, if she is one of the two finalists that emerges from the primary next week, she has a very strong chance of getting elected. They also understand that Dan Kelly, and I have nothing against Dan Kelly other than the fact that I I just... From, a, from an issues perspective, I think he's absolutely fine. When he ran for the Supreme Court in 2020 as an incumbent, he got crushed. The Democrats, the liberals, know that if he is the candidate again, he will lose big time. And that is just the reality. People might not want to hear that, but that is the reality. So what's happening? You have these dark money leftist groups that are out there trashing Jennifer Doro soft on crime oh it just it's complete and total foolishness but what they are trying to do is split the conservative vote and encourage conservatives to not vote for doro but instead vote for kelly 
Why are the liberals trying to do that? Because they know that Dan Kelly will be the much, 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 much weaker candidate. And I I bring this up just because it's the strategy that is being employed. As a matter of fact, I I had a friend of mine who um, was voting absentee, called me the other night and said, I'm really torn between this this Doro and Kelly, except I've seen these negative ads about Doro. Should I vote for Kelly? And I just kind of gave him the same sort of analysis that I just gave you. The fact that, well, these negative ads are largely coming from the left, who view Doro as the more significant conservative challenger, and they're trying to undermine her and try to push Kelly to get elected. Fall for that if you if you choose. And my friend said, oh, okay, well, that 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 helps me a lot. Now I know who I'm going to vote for. So uh, it, it, it's this tactic that's out there. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but what you need to do is be aware of this. And like I say, this is a tactic that the left – Democrats or liberal leading groups have been using with uh, relative success over the last couple of years by playing on, I don't know, believing that, okay, there's some people that maybe we can lure into voting so we can support the candidates that are going to be weaker in the general election. Will Wisconsin voters fall for it? Well, Well, we'll know by the time the polls close next Tuesday night. Okay, when we come back, is the guy a vigilante? Is he a hero? Should he be prosecuted? I'll tell you the story. I, I tell you what, my, my time management. I want. I want to. I do want to talk about this story I've got involving the the supposed vigilante. Let me just kick that back till after the top of the hour because I want to make sure we have enough time to discuss that in the depth that it deserves. All right. If I have a link to this story, if you follow me on uh, Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Got got this story here, and it's another one of these kind of head scratchers about. Gee, do do we wonder why you know things are as out of control as they seem to be? So here's the story. If you haven't been following this, there's a um, guy who hits a police officer with with a pipe hits a police officer with a pipe here's the deal his name is julius nalen pled guilty to substantial battery um here's the deal police district seven so it happened outside police district seven august of 2022 mpd milwaukee police department surveillance captures they've got cameras so it captures the moment nalen walks up to an officer and hits him over the head with a pipe just comes out of nowhere and cold cocks a police officer with a pipe he then turns around and smashes the windows of two squad cars outside of district seven police go outside to see the damage and he's on the ground fighting with an officer according to the investigators he bashed the officer in the head which caused a concussion and a two-inch laceration that required staples and glue to to close. He's got a criminal past that includes prior convictions for robbery and for resisting an officer. All right, so you've got the the picture here of what's going on. Guy, for whatever reason, comes up, whacks a police officer over the head with a pipe, and it is but for the grace of God that the, the officer's not dead. All right, and again, criminal record. 
robbery and resisting an officer. Um, did I mention on top of that that the defendant is in this country illegally? So you've got an illegal alien who goes up, criminal record, smashes a police officer over the head with, with a pipe. All right. Now, this would seem to me to be something that maybe we should take seriously. Well, I'm looking at uh, the disposition. He ends up getting convicted of this. He has now been sentenced. Thursday, February 9th, he appeared before Judge Danielle Shelton. We name names on this program. And I'm looking at the sentence. He was sentenced to serve 12 months in the House of Correction with credit for 185 days time served. But, but, au contraire, that's not what happened. The court then imposed and stayed the sentence and placed the defendant on probation for a period of 36 months with the condition that he go to the mental health unit. If they release him from the mental health unit, um, he gets Huber privileges for work, for treatment for medical and other treatments. Did I mention that he is an illegal alien? Did I mention that he is in the country illegally in the first place? So you, you've got a guy with a criminal record who bashes a police officer over the head with a pipe. His sentence is probation, except we're going to send you off for, uh, to a mental health unit. But if they release you, then you're on probation and you've got Huber privileges. Well, what, what happened to deporting him? I mean, this is one of these things where it's really pretty clear. You send the guy off to prison for hitting a cop with a pipe. You make sure that he spends time in prison. And then when his sentence is over, you turn him over to immigration officials and you send him back to where he came. What is so hard about this and why can't judges do it? I'm sorry, that's a rhetorical question. We were talking about the value of sports franchises. And, of course, late last week, Mark Lazary, who is... One of the co-owners of the Bucks, uh, it's become clear that he's interested in selling his 25% interest. And apparently they've got the, the guy who owns the Cleveland Browns is interested in, in purchasing them. And, and if he sells his 25% interest, he's going to make just a, a ton of money. And that, that's fine. Sports value, franchises appreciate in value. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with his son, Alex Lazary, who is a Milwaukee Bucks executive. What happens if that sale goes through? Lazary is, of course, the guy that ran unsuccessfully for the Democratic Senate nomination. He was running, you know, for two years almost and then bailed a couple weeks before the primary in favor of Mandela Barnes, who went off to lose. And the big question is, you know, you know, if dad sells his interest, you know, are there ties to Milwaukee? Now, Alex Lazary says, well, no, he's staying and he's announcing the formation of his own political action committee to invest in local races, races for mayor and county executives across the state. And he's going to be playing in the race to support liberals in Racine, Green Bay and in Stevens Point. We'll see you know, where that goes, and we'll see if Dad really does sell the Bucks. how long Alex Lazary ends up staying in Wisconsin. Now, Chris Abley, Chris Abley, when he stepped down, he did, in fact, stay. Will Alex Lazary be here long-term? Time will tell. All right, when we come back, I want to talk about the story. Is the guy a vigilante? Stick around. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Hey, what I was talking about in that last segment, I, I just sent out a, a tweet about it, and it's actually the subject of a pretty big piece in today's New York Times. Democrats medal again in a GOP primary, this time down ballot. And again, it involves people who live in the state Senate district that's been occupied by Alberta Darling for years and years. Um, Alberta stepped down late last year. So there's a three-way Republican primary to decide who advances to the general election. This is a Republican-leaning district. The uh, there's three candidates that are running, including State Representative Janelle Branchen, who is a kook. I'm, I'm sorry, that's just the reality. She's been tossed out of the uh, Assembly Caucus. She's she's a kook, and Democrats know it, and they know if she happens to be the one that emerges from this three-way primary, she will get crushed, capital C-R-U-S-H-E-D, in the election. She's probably the only of the three candidates who guarantees that the Republicans are going to lose. That's why the Democrats are spending all sorts of money. They're doing mailings. They are trying to convince people that, oh, Brandigan is the true conservative candidate. You need to vote for her because they want they want to take the gullible, get them to vote for her, so she's the one that emerges, so the Democrat ends up winning. So whenever you see a mailing from the state Democratic Party touting Janelle Brandigan, ask yourself why, gee, have they suddenly decided they want to elect Republicans? No, this is the strategy that they have been using for the last two or three years, playing in Republican primaries to try to identify and elect the weakest candidate. Do not. Do not let that work. All right. Here is the deal. We we know all the problems that we've had in, in southeastern Wisconsin over the last couple of years with car thefts. And the reality is it is incredibly frustrating. And, and I think what's lost sometimes, if you've never been a victim of, of car theft, you don't understand the, the true impact of it. People say, and, and unfortunately, this is one where the, the, I don't think the court system, I don't think the DA's office, I don't think even some of the politicians have caught up with this. And, you know, you just talk to somebody who said their car's stolen, who, you know, you, you come out, your car's gone. There's, first of all, there's that sense of violation. Secondly, there's, okay, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to get to work? How am I going to get my kids to school? And then, you're, you know, you're running around trying to get, replace the car. And even if there's insurance involved, there's still this incredible hassle factor, not to mention, you know, what I was talking about, th- this in- invasion that's there. Car theft is a big thing, and it is frustrating. And think one of the things that's very, very frustrating about this is the fact that there's only so much the police can do. There are so many cars, for example, that are stolen in Milwaukee. And Milwaukee is not unique among urban areas. That, you know, police are dealing with 200 homicides, and they're dealing with carjackings, and they're dealing with armed robberies, and they're dealing with shootings. That, you know, when you have, you come out in front of your house and your car is gone, it's like, well, we're sorry your car is gone. Maybe we can get somebody over there in the next two days to take a report, and and if we find it, we find it. And, And that compounds the frustration. So... Here's a story of what a guy in Denver did last week. So here is here is the deal. Sunday afternoon, guy finds out that his car has been stolen um, from from the street by his house. Car is gone. 
He calls the cops to report that the car is stolen. And they say, okay, well, we'll, we'll come out and we'll, we'll get a report whenever. Guy says, wait. He says, here's the deal. I've got an app. I can track my car. So he tells the police, I'm going to track my car. I'm going to go find my car. And so using this app, the owner of the vehicle tracks his car to an area across town. Okay, so there's his car. His stolen car is, you know, he he finds it. So this is the era of concealed carry. So the guy who is carrying a gun gets out and approaches the the car. Okay, so he's going to go take it back. There are people that are in the car. And apparently what happens is, as he is approaching the car, he finds the car about 12 miles away from where it was stolen, he says there is an exchange of gunfire. And it appears that as he's coming up to the car, they fire first. But at least it's kind of up in the air. But he's got a gun with him. And after they fire, he returns fire. You know, so there's a gun battle. He's going up to his car. There's a group of people in his stolen car. And they fire at him. He fires back. The car drives away. Apparently, they find behind the wheel of the car, they find a 12-year-old boy who has gunshot wound. Um, He dies after being taken to the hospital. Other people who were in the vehicle apparently ran away before the officers arrived. So... 12-year-old is behind the wheel of the stolen car. There's other people with it. The owner of the car tracks it down, and then there is what they are describing as an exchange of gunfire. And as a result of the exchange of gunfire, the 12-year-old, presumably the car theft, but we don't know that for sure. All we know is that he was in the car, there was an exchange of gunfire, and he drove off and he ended up getting hit. The owner of the vehicle, at this point in time, has not been arrested. I mean, he stayed on the scene, told him what happened, although the police are saying the incident remains under investigation. Um, All right, so now you have a number of councilmen who are talking about this. One of them from Denver says, I know auto theft is a growing issue, not just in Denver, but everywhere, and it's infuriating to be victimized like this, but I discourage any resident to taking a vigilante approach. All right. Um, The police say at this stage of the ongoing investigation, the vehicle's owner has not been arrested. And per standard protocol, the DA's office will ultimately make the determination regarding possible charges. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, authorities are saying, well, this form of, you know, people shouldn't be engaging in this form of self-help. But at the same time, all right, do you... Do you think this guy should be charged? Do you think he was wrong in going armed to try to recover his car? Should he have stayed back? Should he have let the police just do their job? Now, candidly, from a charging perspective, if it is in fact true that he's approaching this car and and they fire at him and he returns fire, I I don't think there's any way in the world that they're going to issue criminal charges against him. And that appears to be the case because, like I say, he, he hasn't been arrested in this situation. But the act of trying to recover his car, that in and of itself was he out of line? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 
855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. See, here, here is my concern. And, and I say this in all honesty. I think unless we get a handle on things like car theft, and, and I mean, I mean, I mean a handle. I mean arresting the people that are doing this, showing that there are true consequences, so people don't have to worry about their cars being stolen. More, if, unless we do this, more and more of this stuff is is going to happen, and it's going to put the victims of the car theft. They're going to be at risk. It's going to put innocent citizens who might be in the path of a hail of bullets at risk. And it's also, I guess, theoretically going to put the bad guys at risk. But I'm I'm less sympathetic with that. If you're just tuning in, here's the story. Um, Sunday afternoon, this story is out of Denver. Guy, his car is stolen from outside his house. He's got one of those apps in the car so you can track it. So he calls the police. He reports the car is stolen. And then he tells the cops, hey, I'm going to go try to find this, this car. And I don't think they tell him not to do it. So he's got a gun. He approaches the car. There's a bunch of people in the car. I think what happens is they see him coming up to the car. Maybe they see, maybe he's got the gun out. They fire at him. He returns fire. Car drives off. Turns out behind the wheel of the stolen car is a 12-year-old kid. Don't know if the 12-year-old kid was involved in stealing the car, but he's behind the wheel of it. He ends up dying. The other people that are in the car run off, and they're still looking for them. The man has not been arrested at this point in time. I doubt he's going to be arrested if, in fact, he was fired on. I think he's probably got a right to return fire. But this, you know, now he's being labeled as the Denver vigilante for taking the law into his own hands. This is the stuff, though, that more and more people, I think, are going to do unless we get a handle, unless people believe that, hey, I can report my car is stolen and the police are going to go catch him and then the people are going to be held accountable. Otherwise, more and more people are going to be out there doing this. And I don't think that's a good thing. Would I charge the guy? No. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I had, a, I feel he had every right to seek out his vehicle and attempt to retrieve it if the facts are stated. I'm sorry about the loss of life, but no charges should be brought against the man. Jeff, I know. Jeff, I would steal my own car back. I know it's risky and dangerous. The man is not a vigilante in my opinion. Jeff, I'm sorry the 12-year-old is dead, but the criminals fire first. That's my understanding, and the story should serve as a deterrent. The owner should not be charged. Um... Yeah, Jeff, he's not wrong, even though it becomes an even more dangerous situation than if we had police involved. Um, Yeah, $300 million for police and fire EMT services before baseball stadiums. Yeah, for everybody who thinks that this is going to be an easy sell to put in several hundred million dollars more into the Brewers for the stadium, I'm just telling you, regardless of where you come down on it, it's not going to be an easy sell. Jeff, law enforcement and judges are not doing anything to these thieves. So, yeah, I totally approve of this decision. Once something done, you have to do it yourself. Well, I mean, see, the, the problem here is... In this case, it, it's the 12, 12-year-old kid, you know, uh, who I think it's a fair assumption that was probably involved in stealing the car. That the, you know, in this case, it's the car thief that gets shot, but it, it could have very easily been the other way around. The car thief fire at the guy, and he ends up being the one in the morgue. That's, that's the problem when you, when you try to do this type of stuff. Jeff, we will see more of this as police don't have the resources to protect us. Good for this man and glad he wasn't hurt. I'm told police don't even show up for car thefts in Milwaukee anymore. That's, again, this is the problem, and this is why 
you you can't allow any urban area, whether it's Milwaukee or Denver or whatever, to become like Escape from New York, where people don't believe that authorities can protect them because this is the situation. Jeff, my new car has the same kind of app. If I were in his shoes, I would do the same thing. Sounds like he approached police and they blew him off. So as for the 12-year-old, it's too bad, but maybe this will tell his buddies they shouldn't steal cars because they could end up dead. Um, Jeff, he was definitely not out of line. He shouldn't be charged. I personally, this is Charles, I would personally like to see a few more Charles Bronsons out there myself. Nothing is being done about stolen vehicles or crime. That's, of course, a reference to the old Death Wish movies with Charles Bronson. But, see, the, the problem with this, and it's why I never encourage vigilantism, is you know, it, it's it's just as likely that the quote-unquote vigilante, the the citizen trying to recover his car, it's just as likely that that he can walk into a situation which quickly gets over his head and and he ends up dead. So you don't want to see that situation. But this is a cautionary tale to communities, I think, all over the country, that if if and when police start believing that you cannot protect them, you can't recover their property, and people become tired of, of being victims, well, then they do start trying to do this. Jeff, I think he should have located the car and stayed nearby while calling the police. Let them handle it from here. I wouldn't charge him if the robbers ended up firing first. Lucy on the west side. Lucy, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hi, your caller. Please, caller, probably stole my thunder. Um, No, I do not think he should be charged. And if he is charged, I don't think he'll get convicted. I think the jury might vote to give him a medal. But I do wish that when he called the police and said, I found my car, I'm going to go get it, the police would have said, "Uh, hold on, we'll meet you there. Yeah, which would obviously be the the, the best way to do it. The problem is I'm not sure... You know, I, I think the re- resources are stretched so far. I, I, I wonder if they I wonder if that happened today in Milwaukee, what their reaction would be. And I honestly don't know. I, I don't know either. And you and I talk about resources all the time. Well, I text back and forth about resources all the time. But you know, some of us predicted this was what was going to happen if we didn't get a handle on the car thefts when they skyrocketed. Yeah. When was it? In 2020 that they skyrocketed? Yeah. 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 I think it was during COVID. But anyway, a number of people wrote the mayor. I was one of them and said, if you don't do something about this, you're going to get vigilante justice. And yeah. I, I did use the word vigilante because at some point people, you know, people are pretty smart and they're not, a lot of people are not willing to sit back and just be victims. But yeah. I, do, I do wish the police had, had met him there. I think that would have been a much better outcome. The kids might have yeah. shot at the police. But yeah, no, I no, I, I see. I I agree with you, but I mean, again, it, just like you were saying earlier, it, it is the cautionary tale that is, if as more and more people get frustrated with this, and especially if you got these app trackers, you know where your car is, you call the cops, and they say, well, you know, sorry, there's nothing we can do about it, or whatever. More and more people are going to be inclined to take things into their own hands, and we both agree that's not a good idea. Okay. Yep. Thank, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I don't unless there's more to this, I, I don't anticipate that there's going to be any sort of charges that are out there. And th- th- the larger point is more and more people are going to start doing this unless we figure out a way to get things uh, get this handled. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. More Jeff Wagner right after this. 
There's so much snow. I gotta get to work. Hey, Wyatt, how did you get your driveway shoveled so fast? Easy, I just checked the WTMJ forecast when I woke up. That's right, Wisconsin. Before you hit your driveway, listen to severe weather coverage on WTMJ. Presented by Fleet Farm. Proudly serving the Midwest since 1955. Quality furniture that lasts. The good stuff. And because it's good quality furniture, it won't be the least expensive. But if you compare our caliber of furniture and our prices to the other higher-end furniture stores throughout Greater Milwaukee, you'll find that Ken Michaels Furniture is truly priced at a value. It's the kind of furniture you won't regret buying. The good stuff at good prices. Furniture for life at Ken Michaels Furniture. In Brookfield, Greenfield, or downtown Milwaukee, browse our selection at KenMichaelsFurniture.com. At our stores, we don't have 500 in-stock mattresses. But the good news is you only need one. We make them one at a time just for you. You choose the firmness level, the type of filling materials you want, which could be cotton, wool, latex, or foam, and in three to five days, we deliver it to you fresh from our factory at a price that's hundreds less than premium national mattress brands. Milwaukee mattresses from Ken Michaels Furniture in Brookfield, Greenfield, or downtown Milwaukee, where no middleman needs no extra markup and real savings for you. WTMJ's Vince Vetrano here. You know, I've played sports my entire life, been hurt a lot of times, but never had been injured until I had to stop doing the sports I enjoyed because my knee flat wouldn't allow it. I visited Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin, where they took great care of me. I put my knee in their doctor's capable hands, and now I'm back in the gym, carrying my golf bag pain-free for 18 holes, and playing tennis as often as I like with no issue. I'd recommend Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin to anyone. Visit orthowisconsin.com. You're back at the gym. Your new gym outfit? On point. Your new sneakers? Baller. You've got this. Just like Associated Banks got you with access checking. It's maintenance fee free with no minimum balance requirements. So when you take your first yoga class in 10 months, your body might surprise you, but your checking account won't. You've got this with access checking from Associated Bank. See AssociatedBank.com slash checking or ask a banker for details. Member FDIC. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. You, you know, I, I was talking about the, the sleazy tactics that some of these dark money groups and these Democrats are using to try to um, pre-select candidates. They In the Supreme Court race, the left does not want to see Jennifer Doro win. They want to see Dan Kelly be the conservative candidate because their perception, and I think it is correct, is that Kelly will get crushed in the general election, whereas Jennifer Doro will probably win. So you have these lefty groups that are out there trashing Doro, hoping to convince people who would otherwise vote for Doro to vote for Kelly. So Kelly the weaker candidate emerges and you know we've been trying to to document this and so it's a lot of these like dark money groups with these like haughty titles and stuff i I just got a to give you an idea i just got a text a a tweet text from one of our listeners who said gee talking about this i just um I, i just got something from uh this group called safe families wisconsin that is, it's an anti-Doro piece, Doro soft on crime, from something called Safe Families Wisconsin with a Chicago address. And I was kind of curious, what is Safe Families Wisconsin? Well, it's real interesting because you go to Safe Families Wisconsin, and it's a, it's a legitimate group that is there for, you know, out there to support 
I mean, children, they've got a statement on their website saying it's been brought to our team's attention that there is a political campaign postcards that states it was paid for by Safe Families Wisconsin. Safe Families for Children Wisconsin has not paid for any campaigns endorsing or denouncing a political candidate. We are sending a cease and desist letter to the organization that is sending the mailer. We are an organization founded on principles of family support and stabilization. We do not have any political affiliation. So what you've got is some of these slimeball groups are taking names. It's it's just kind of like the spoofing and stuff that goes on. Safe Families Wisconsin creating at least an impression that maybe this mailer is coming from a legitimate organization when all it is is a political front group trying to, in this case, trash Jennifer Doro. The, the depths that some of these people will stoop to just never ceases to amaze me. So if you happen to be one of these people getting getting something from Safe Families Wisconsin, it's bogus. It's a scam and... I would caution you not to believe it. And and by the way, before more people text me about this, um, we I I don't get any control over who buys ads and and runs ads on, on the radio show. And when it comes to political advertising, if we accept political advertising from any candidates, then we accept political advertising from all the candidates and from the uh, special interest groups that are out there. So that that is that is my only comment other than, as we've been talking about today, there is a calculated strategy which is, is going on with left-wing groups that are trying to ch- cherry-pick who becomes the candidate, the conservative candidate in the general elections. And what you're seeing them do is they run ads trashing one of the two conservative candidates in a hope that you will vote for the other conservative candidate. Why would they do that? Because they perceive the other conservative candidate to be the weaker of the, the two. So that that's what's going on, and you can vote accordingly. All right. So, you know, Governor Evers, in addition to the $300 million for the Brewers, he's out as part of his budget proposal. Now, what this really has to do with, with a budget is kind of difficult to do, but what is kind of tough to understand. But he wants to, um, he wants to change the way you register to vote or supplement that. Um, as part of his plans, first of all, he wants everybody to be automatically registered to vote when you get your driver's license. Um, This is something that they, in about 20 states, they they do. So when you apply for your driver's license at the DMV, you are automatically registered to vote. Now, there's, you, you can opt out. There's essentially ways you can do that after the fact, but the presumption is you get your driver's license and you, you are automatically registered to vote. In addition, Governor Evers wants to take people who are illegally in this country, and he wants to have them get driver's licenses. He also wants to reduce the residency rules. Right now, um, you have to live in an area, a state, a city, a ward. You have to live there 28 days before the the election. So you have to establish residency. He wants to knock that down to 10 days, meaning that, if you move into an area, well, I don't know, two weeks before the election, you can vote in that area. 
like I say, now it's 28 days. But one of his operative things is he says, you know, he wants us to be like the motor voter thing that everybody who gets a driver's license automatically becomes eligible to vote. Now, I assume, I assume that even with Tony Evers, there's going to be a provision that says that doesn't extend to the illegal aliens that he wants to, uh, again, give driver's licenses to. But I want to talk about the, the overall thought, should you automatically be registered to vote once you get your driver's license? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line automatic registration automatic voter registration they do it in about 20 states 30 states or so don't allow it would it be a good idea to say you're automatically registered to vote simply by going down and and getting your driver's license 855-616-1620 that is the old national bank talk and text line is this something you need to do or is this, as we frequently talk about, a solution in search of a problem? 855-616-1620. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So as part of his budget proposal, how how this applies to the budget proposal is kind of up in the air. But what Tony Evers wants to do is, is he wants to essentially incorporate what they call the motor voter bill in Wisconsin. What this would do is say that you are automatically registered to vote when you go and get your Wisconsin driver's license. And there would be a provision for people to opt out if you want. Good idea, bad idea. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I think it's reasonable to register someone when they get their driver's license. It would save everyone a step in registering, but it would have to be connected and eliminate you from getting off the voter rolls everywhere. Otherwise, I would not be in favor of that. Well, that's a real interesting point because what happens if you you register it one location so you're registered to vote and then i don't know you you don't change your address with the dmv but you decide that you want to go and you want to go you've, you've moved or whatever and you want to vote somewhere else how do you handle that jeff so can i go to the dmv and change my address to a location where i prefer to vote in every election wouldn't be hard to do especially if illegal persons can get a license i will never understand the logic of that jeff everything our government does online gets screwed up if a driver's license means you can already be registered i guarantee you there will be 16 year olds on the voter rolls we're just asking for a problem let alone people who are here illegally that can be on the voter rolls as well well that's an interesting thing because i mean right now if you're here illegally you can't get a driver's license evers wants to change that but if you are here legally, even though you're not eligible to vote, you can get a driver's license. So you, you wonder how many people are going to go in on a green card or something like that, and somehow they're going to find themselves on the the voting thing. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff, great idea. Make it mandatory that or a state ID. Both have photos. Um, Jeff, you can't vote until 18, and then you move. There's a two-year window. Jeff, I think it's a great idea. It gives law enforcement a to-do list. Jeff, 
I don't understand how you can come up with a procedure to register illegal voters. Can you explain? Well, theoretically, you know, th- these are two separate things. He, he wants to allow undocumented people to be able to get driver's licenses because Tony Evers somehow believes that that will make communities safer. I, how he believes that, I don't know, but he believes that will make it safer. This is separate. People who get driver's licenses are would then automatically be eligible to vote. Now, presumably, if you're there would be a distinction, and if you've got the driver's license and you're here illegally, you wouldn't still go under the voting rolls. How you guarantee that, um, I don't know. Jeff, in a close election, could a few people book an eight-bed Airbnb for 10 to 12 days, change their address temporarily very close to the election date, and vote to thin the margins and move someplace else for a close election in two to four years? The answer to that is absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the things that's not talked about, and and I've been making a point of this. I, Wisconsin is one of a relative handful of states that allow same-day registration. If we want to talk about the potential for fraud, to me, it's same-day registration. The reason we have to have same-day registration, by the way, under the law, is we don't have motor voter. We, if we had motor voter, you could say, all right, you know, you have to, you can't register to vote on the day of the election. You have to be registered 10 days in advance or 14 days in advance. If, if you really were concerned about voter fraud to the extent you believe that, or at least that's a concern, people showing up with very little ties to the community, one of the ways you could theoretically get a handle on that is by requiring, by eliminating same-day registration. So at least authorities would have a week or two to try to determine if somebody comes in and registers at X address that they really are from X address. Right now, there's nothing you can really do. You take them on faith, you let them cast the ballot, and then if you find out afterwards that they weren't from there, there's not a lot you can do. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Dave on the west side. Dave, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? I am well, thank you. Is this a good idea? It is not a good idea. I have three adult daughters. One lives with me. Two do not. One lives out of state. And the other lives in the same county. But if the one out of, who lives out of state has Wisconsin driver's license, she's now registered to vote in both Illinois and in Wisconsin. That's a problem. Yeah. 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 And if you're, um, yes, and you're exactly right. It, and, it, and it's not saying that she would necessarily do that. But it's creating the potential for for her to do that. I guess I just look at this, Dave, and say, what 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 is the big deal with having elections separate from the Department of Transportation? And you know, it, it's not like we make it tough to register to vote. My my goodness, you know, people are out there all the time. It, it's it's about as easy to register to vote as you can imagine. I guess I don't understand why we need to take this extra step, given some of the problems that it could theoretically cause. Government isn't very good at doing anything efficiently and effectively. They won't be any good at this either. And if you look, most college students, uh, many who attend college out of state, have driver's licenses at their parents' home. That creates a problem. 
Yeah, no, you're you're right. No, thanks for calling. No, you're exactly right. Or 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 they attend colleges, you know, in state. So you know that that becomes the the question. All right, should you have to, you know, what's the more efficient way if you're going to try to manage the voter rolls? Does it make sense to have a a student, for example, who's going to school in Lacrosse, who who wants to vote? in lacrosse but has the driver's license that again it's through mom and dad's house most likely you know in in waukesha or whatever does it make more sense to say okay we're going to just ask the kid to go and register in lacrosse and again in wisconsin we have same day registration it's it's not like you need to do this i mean if you want to if you want to vote in wisconsin we, we make it about as easy as possible. You show up at the polls on Election Day. You've got your proof of citizenship. You've got your photo ID, your driver's license, and you've got you know some proof of that you live where you live, and boom, you're going to vote. To me, this is as long as you allow same-day registration, and I don't hear the governor pushing to get rid of same-day registration, as long as you allow same-day registration, there's no reason in the world, it seems to me, to to go with this motor voter thing and to have the DMV essentially take over monitoring the election rolls. Now, again, if we want to change this notion, and if you want to say, all right, we're going to do away with same-day registration, Maybe I'm willing to discuss it, but I don't think Governor Evers is going to be talking about doing that. You know, one of the things about growing up in in this area is you you see a lot of businesses that that come and, and go. Restaurants come they're very successful they leave you know even institutions like department stores like like boston store for example which was such an institution and then boston store ends up going belly up one of the interesting things has been if you think back especially if if you've lived around here for a long time just think back you know one of the constants is car dealerships and and if you think about car dealerships and, and the individuals who who founded them and, and drove them have been around forever um you know Gordy von Schladorn you know or Ernie von Schladorn you know Ernie von Schladorn which was just just an institution think about all those Ernie von Schladorn ads and um my friend Gary Newman you know Newman Chevrolet um another dear friend of mine Russ Darrow you know the, there there is a Russ Darrow and yeah he he's he's still around and you know the, these people that, that started out and then just built these businesses and you know Don Jacobs Toyota and of course, Jim Griffin and Summers, you know, um, out in in the Thienesville Mequon area. All, all these the these are are individuals in general who who founded these auto dealerships, and they're still here years and years and years later. I, I bring this up because you, you had the news the other day of the passing of Emil Ewald, and if you the the Ewald car dealerships have just been around here. Just absolutely, you know, for forever. This is a brand that has been, you know, in the Milwaukee area for almost 60 years, you know, and it was Emil Ewald's Mayfair Chrysler Plymouth. I can remember those ads. And then, you know, they had a Chevy dealership in Oconomowoc, and then they've got a, a Ford dealership kind of down by the airport. And uh, Tom Ewald, the, the son, they've, they've been an advertiser over the years. Great guy. I bought a car from him a number of years ago. But it, it's just, it, it really struck me when I see the story about the passing of, of Emil Ewald at the age of 95, 
how around here when when it comes to auto sales and and I'm I'm my list here is no by no means meant to be exclusive but you just have have like titans of the industry and you have people who started these auto dealerships a lot of times they started from scratch and they have been able to survive for decades and decades and decades and you know and, and then you know when the original owner passes well there's that second or third generation that's there to, to take over so I, I just you know Emil Ewald for those of you who might be kind of new to the area it is impossible to describe what what a presence you know that they were he was and and how important he was to the business just like so many of the other people that we mentioned here and it's I don't know that other communities have that where you have the auto dealers who were there for generation after generation after generation it is very cool and in many cases when the founder retires or passes away there is that second generation to take over it's something that's i think very very cool and i don't know that it's unique to the milwaukee area but it's very very cool so emily wald passing away at the age of 95 sail on live from the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show now here's wtmj's jeff wagner Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. We really touched a nerve. In the last segment of the program, I just briefly mentioned the passing of Milwaukee car dealer um, Emil Ewald at, at the age of 95. And um, it just, I, I don't know. And I, look, I, I don't pretend to know whether other areas have have car dealers that are essentially so in, entrenched, and in the case of you know Mr. Ewald, he, he started like in 1959, and so you, you saw the various dealerships expand, and now there, there's Ewald dealerships, you know, all, all over the area. Not unlike um, again, Rust Darrow and, and Rust Darrow's personal friend, and still he, he's still with us. And when my wife and I got engaged, oh, a number of years ago, he had a, had a party for us. That was so wonderful. But you know, but again, it, it's one of these things where you. Have have you know somebody who like starts out with almost nothing and then builds up the the dealerships and there, there were so many others um, again um, Ernie von Schladorn I mean who can't forget who can't forget those ads and Jim Griffin and Don Jacobs and um, my my friend and neighbor Gary Newman Newman Chevrolet but had a number of people who were just texting during the break Jeff don't forget. Don't forget Gordy Boucher, who you know passed away just uh, November of last year, and um, Phil Tolkien. Remember Phil Tolkien and uh, the the singing Pontiacs? Yeah, I remember that stuff. And you know, of course, you've got David Hobbs as well. There's just I don't intend this to be an exclusive list by any shape, may, may, way, shape, or form. But it is just all these different auto dealerships that started out, and you know now they're second, third, fourth generation, and they're still in southeastern Wisconsin. I mean, how cool is that? As long as we are talking about autos. You know, in the last segment of the program, we were talking about, you know, whether or not you, you should be automatically registered to vote once you, you get your, your driver's license. Last week on, on, the, on the show, we did a segment that was devoted to people's first cars, you know, you, you never forget your, your first. And it was a real interesting conversation about that. And I was telling the story about how I remember when I turned 16, how big a deal getting a driver's license was to the point that, um, and, and I don't remember exactly why it worked out this way, but my birthday's in May. And I was, I didn't qualify at the time I went to Nicolay High School. And 
I was too young the summer before when I was 15. It was too far away for me to take driver's ed, and I don't, I don't even remember why that was. So I, I couldn't take driver's ed the summer I was 15 in advance of when I turned 16 the following May. So I, I remember, but I wanted my driver's license, and I remember, you know, for Christmas, that was my parents' gift. They got me driving lessons at, it was it was called Arcade. I don't even know if it's still around, but it was a driver's school. And I can remember, you know, I would, uh, you, you had to go through classes. The, the um, Arcade office we went to were like on 60th and Capitol by the old Capitol Court, and then you take the, you know, you take the driving things and all. But I, I went through that because I wanted to get my driver's license as soon as possible. And I can remember the morning I turned 16. I mean, I remember, you know, my dad took me to the um, motor vehicle thing. It was on, It's I think it's, they still got a DMV there. It was on It was on Tetonia, kind of in, in Glendale, uh, between north of Silver Spring and south of Mill Road. And I remember going there. I took the driver's test. I passed it my, my first time, you know, out of the box. And I can still, it, it's been a lot of years, but I can still vividly remember, you know, getting the, the, the driver's license. And, and back then, believe it or not, Wisconsin had paper driver's licenses. They weren't these laminated things, didn't have your picture on them or anything like that. But I remember getting the driver's license, and I wanted, wanted to drive the car to school. And my parents said, well, you know, we live three blocks away from the high school. You don't need to drive your car to school. But I can remember I, I couldn't wait till after school ended, and then I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive around. I'm going to take my friends home and stuff like that. I, I just I wanted the I wanted the driver's license as quickly as I could because of all those things. It was the sense of freedom and man, I can go anywhere I want, you know, as long as my parents were cool with that and things like that. So, but but that was that was important to me. And my guess is. For, for a lot of you, it, it was important to you, and you can remember that. I want my driver's license as soon as I can possibly get it, which brings me to the story that I want to talk about. Story in the Washington Post today. I'll call an Uber or 911 why Gen Z doesn't want to drive. Now, Generation Z is loosely defined as people who were born between 1996 and 2012. So at, at the younger end of, of Gen Z, we're talking about people who are 11 or 12. But at the older end, you're talking about people who are like 27. So who've been eligible to drive for 10 or 11 years. And one of the things that they are noticing among Zoomers, which is the term that they use to describe Gen Z, is that unlike us baby boomers, um, Gen Z doesn't see cars as a ticket to freedom or a crucial life milestone. And what they're seeing is that fewer and fewer, as compared to earlier generations, fewer and fewer Gen Z people want to get their driver's licenses. In 1997, 43% of 16-year-olds and 62% of 17-year-olds had driver's licenses. Okay, so 43 and 62. In 2020, those numbers had fallen. 25% of 16-year-olds, only one in four, had a driver's license, and 45% down from 62% of 17-year-olds had a driver's license. And, you know, they're talking about some people in the insurance industry, and it said, you know, we're, we're hearing, and the numbers are showing, that younger people aren't driving or 
getting their driver's licenses as quickly as they've had in the past. And the, the trend is most pronounced for teenagers, but even older members of Gen Z are lagging behind. In 1997, almost 90% of people 20 to 25-year-olds had licenses. In 20, 2020, it was down to 80%. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, so the, the numbers the numbers don't lie. They're, they're, they are there. Fewer young people are getting their licenses and are, are driving. So my question is, why and will that trend continue? I mean, like I say, it was just I, I, I can't imagine. I could not have imagined turning 16 and not being able to go down and, and get my driver's license. I couldn't have imagined saying, oh, I don't know. I don't think I need a car. I'll, I'll hold off. To, I don't know if I need to drive. I'll hold off till I'm 21 or 22. It just wasn't going to happen. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right. Gen Z is not hitting the road at least as much. Why is that? And will the trend continue? 855-616-1620. And if you've got those kids or those grandkids who are in that Gen Z, are you noticing this? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. I love this topic. Gen Z, which are, I mean, the low end of Gen Z, it's kids that are 11 or 12, but it goes up to people who are 27. The, the, the numbers don't lie. Unlike people like us boomers who couldn't wait to get our driver's license, statistically, it's not happening for the, the Gen Z folks. Jeff, I'm baffled by this. I have three nieces and nephews in this age bracket, and none really cared about getting a license. Like you, I couldn't wait. It's similar to young people living at home, and we couldn't wait to get out of the house and be on my own. Jeff, that sounds crazy to me. I'm 57 and couldn't wait to get my license to give me way uh, more independence. Jeff, my kids are Gen Z, and we've definitely noticed their generation is largely ambivalent about getting, about getting a license at the age of 16. It's really weird. I cannot explain why. Jeff, I have three Gen Z, I have three Gen Zs, 23, 21, 19. They all got their licenses within a month of turning 16. However, I live in a part of Ozaki County where you need a car to get to work, school, running errands. You cannot walk. Um, interesting. Jeff, the economics of owning a car and the rise of ride sharing are big factors. The average price of a new car is approaching $40,000. Yeah. See, and I understand the buying the car, but I wanted the driver's license. I mean, you know, at the age of 16, I, I didn't own the car, but, but still I wanted to be able to drive. And you know what? My parents wanted me to be able to drive because my brother Scott is, as he will point out, I'm a significantly older brother. Um, you know, he's seven years younger than me. My, my parents wanted me to drive because they wanted me to take over the responsibilities of shuttling him around the places. Scott's got baseball practice. Scott's got to go to whatever the stuff. You you drive your brother. And I was like, cool, I get to use the car to drive my brother. They, they wanted that. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to, let's start with Jim in Cedarburg. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how are you? I'm good. What do hey, you Jeff, think? Have you, you know, noticed this? Yeah. Well, you know, I was a driver instructor for many years with MPS on the side. And, you know, kids, um, it was 
it's harder now to take driver ed simply because it's a lot more freelance than when you and I took it. When we took it, right. I think at Sheboygan North, I think they even gave us a tenth of credit or something like that when we took right. it. But everybody as a sophomore just enrolled in it as a class. So you almost automatically had it. You know, right. it's not that way anymore. You know, and there's a lot of kids out there who are skittish now. You know, then at least when I finished doing driver ed a few years back, there were a lot more kids that were taking it when they were 17, 18 years old. Instead of 15 and 16, were, they were almost the outliers, not the norm. So yeah. you know, it's falling no. apart in the schools, you know, and they don't teach it in the schools anymore. Try finding a school that has it. It's rec department, rec sold off to easy method. So, yeah. you know, the incentive is just not there, you know, and it's very expensive to send a kid through driver ed courses about 400 bucks is not easy for you know people who uh, have limited incomes or maybe have too many kids that's why you know they're calling to get funding from the state to help offset the price of the driver ed programs in the city of Milwaukee. interesting thanks to call jim i and and that i'm and, and i'm sure that's that's a that's a point but i i i guess keep in mind that this isn't I mean, I was throwing out some of the numbers with the number of 16 and 17 year olds who are down, but the number of people over the age of 20 is is down a, as well, and and maybe that is a function of like the it becoming you know more difficult. But but man, I, I mean, I just remember again it when I was when I when I was 16 back in the day. But but all my friends, it was like you got to get a driver's license as soon as you possibly can. And it didn't matter if you were a boy or a girl. I mean, every that was the thing. You know, if you if you weren't getting your driver's license on your birthday, you were getting it within a couple days of your birthday because it was it was just the, the situation. Karen, who is calling us from Illinois. Karen, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. You Hi, are just Describing my grandchildren. The oldest is going to be 20 next month. His sister will be 19 in July. And when I ask my daughter, she just says, oh, they're not ready. (laughs) And I want to say, get them ready. (laughs) I mean, and they don't have jobs either. Well, thank Mom Karen. Thanks is for driving them to college. Well, <laughs> Karen, th- thanks for the call. That would be that would I, I would tell you that that I'm trying to think. Mom, I need you to drive me to college. I, I think that I'm not sure how far that would go. But you know, that 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 that's the other thing. I mean, and maybe it all ties in with the, the the kind of idea of independence. Now, look, I I understand it's it's easier to get around now, especially if you've got a credit card, because you know you you do have. You have, I mean, look, when I was a kid growing up, you didn't have Ubers and you didn't have the ride share and the lifts and stuff like that. I mean, you know, if you wanted to go somewhere and, and you didn't want to take public transportation, well, you know, you had to have a friend, you had to have had wheels yourself or a friend that you could bum a, a ride with. And so now it is a little bit easier, I guess. And I, I do appreciate that if you are, if you're living in an urban area, um, it, it's, you know, maybe it's easier to get by without a car because of the, the different ride-sharing things that are there. But still, to me, it just doesn't explain. I just wanted that driver's license. I mean, that was I, I was ready the day I turned 16. Let's talk to Greg in Lake Geneva. Greg, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Well, the first thing I would ask you, how much money did you pay to take your driver education classroom? 
Boy, I, I don't remember. Like I say, it was a Christmas gift. Yeah, it was a well, no, exactly. well, no, it was, a, I mean, it was a Christmas like ten bucks, you know, okay. twelve bucks, you know. It was, it was, it was something that was just mandatory. So today, kids are paying four hundred to five hundred dollars to take driver's education. I've been doing this now for forty-eight years, and now the cost of driver's education is four to five hundred dollars for a student to take it. So parents, they just can't afford it. Plus, you got to buy a car once you get it. Plus the cost of insurance once you get the car. Plus, you know, they're busy with sports and stuff. They can't do the requirements on time that need to be done along the way. But I would say the number one thing is the cost from went from $20 to $500, you know, just to get your permit and get in driver's education uh, in the state of Wisconsin. Whereas Illinois, it's a mandatory thing. And I moved here to Wisconsin, and Illinois is trying to do that, but right now it's in the school system. But uh, Wisconsin, you know, they uh, they require you to go to a uh, private sector, and boom, it's going up and up and up, you know, for you to get in. So people are not just going to pay, not when you can wait till you're 18 years of age and not cost you a penny to get in. Right, right. Thanks for call, Greg. I, I and, and maybe that is one of the factors, I guess. You know, when you say, all right, well, you know, there's other things that were priorities. I got to tell you, getting my driver's license was probably the, the top priority of stuff I wanted. And, and maybe that's, that's true. That that's why some people are delaying it. But again, you've also got the numbers that there's, there's a lot of people in that 20 to 25 age group who statistically compared to other generations, they, they haven't gotten their driver's license either. And it, it's just to me, it's an interesting phenomenon. And it's one that, Again, I I just I don't understand unless it is purely economic and if kids can't afford it. But my sense is that there's a lot of people who maybe could afford it, but they're making a decision to hold off as well, maybe because they're not ready or maybe because mom's ready to be a chauffeur or whatever. I just know a lot of parents out there who want their kids to get the driver's licenses as soon as possible because they don't want to be the chauffeurs anymore. Several of our texters <clears throat> have made the point, and I mean several, that, you know, a couple of our callers were saying, well, there's the cost, driver's ed, you know, it, it costs like four or $500 now, and it's expensive and stuff. Um, several of our callers make this point in one fashion or another. Jeff, I, I've seen the trend. Now it's all about getting a phone at a younger and younger age. Our, our kids didn't get a cell phone until they passed their driver's test. Sad world. One of our other texters says, Jeff. Okay, phones cost a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars. So they can afford to get cell phones, but they can't afford drivers ed. Um, <laughs> uh, and they can afford. Okay, Jeff, parents are saying parents. People are saying parents can't afford it. However, they can afford the best smartphones and five dollar drinks from Starbucks. Yeah, I, cost really? They all have fifteen hundred dollar phones. No, I I think the key to this really is. I think it's just kind of priorities. And I think that there's a lot of, and I'm I'm not being judgmental about it, but there's a lot of the Gen Z kids, for example, who would rather have that that $1,200 cell phone than they would have their driver's license. And that's just, that's something that's different. And maybe because it's it's Uber, or maybe because it's mom and dad that are willing to keep driving them all over, and, and that's fine. It just is what it is. But, man, I don't get it. I am so very glad to have you spending your Valentine's Day with me. And hopefully hopefully you took me seriously, guys, when I was telling you about the uh, pajama gram and stuff. And if you didn't go that route, 
Hopefully you, you have some other gift for your special someone. Um, again, Valentine's Day, always very special. Tonight, I think our plans are going out to a very nice dinner with a couple Another couple of very close friends of ours, so I am looking forward to that. Hey, Wisconsin, um, it might be a little bit cold out right now, but soon it's going to be warming up, and you will need to get your home ready. That is why I am here for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank. This week we're brought to you by our friends at Ridgetop Exteriors. Visit their website, ridgetop-exteriors.com, or give them a call, I think it's actually ridgetopexteriors.com, or give them a call at 414-291-7663, 414-291-7663. It's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on WTMJ. Okay, you want to talk about a fall from grace. Uh, who, can I see a show of hands? Who remembers Jared, the, the subway spokesperson? Um, okay, Jared is, if you, if you don't, Jared was the, the guy who shed, he got rid of 245 pounds, 245 pounds by eating Subway sandwiches. And he was working out as well. But, you know, once, once he did that, he became this huge spokesperson. And, and Jared was, Ubiquitous. He, I mean, he was he was just all over it. He would go do openings of Subway sandwich stores, and you'd see him on TV all the time, you know. And he'd be touting all the stuff. And he was, I, I think, for a time, he was as as just as white hot as any spokesperson um, for you know a property would would be. Now that all kind of fell apart because um, in twenty fourteen. A, a woman comes forward and tells cops that uh, Jared had um, essentially um, offered to send her images of child pornography. In July of 2015, his home was searched by state and federal authorities, and um, he was arrested along with um, one of his one of his friends who, interestingly enough, ran the Jared Foundation, which was an organization aimed to provide education about childhood obesity. And he and his buddy were both charged by federal authorities in 2015 in a child pornography investigation. Um, he later pled guilty to possession of child pornography and traveling across state lines to have commercial sex with a minor. Yuck. Um, Jared is currently serving a 15-year sentence at a prison facility in Colorado, and he's uh, due to, well, he's due to get out in March of 2029, and he'll be at least 51 years old when he's released. So I mean, you want to talk about just kind of a stunning fall from grace. This, this, is, this is it, and of course, it, it's, it's deserved because what he did was absolutely reprehensible. So why am I talking, his last name is Fogel. So why am I talking about Jared Fogel? Well, it's because he is the new subject of a new documentary that's going to be coming out. It's going to premiere next month, March 6th. It's going to be streaming on Discovery+. Plus. It's called Jared from Subway Catching a Monster. According to the release, the docuseries reveals the shocking, previously untold story of the investigation that exposed the monster insidiously lurking behind Fogel's charming persona and how his true nature as a child predator was finally revealed. So they're doing this. You know, I, I was reading this because 
I understand there's always some interest in this stuff, but I, I lump this into the same category as that Netflix documentary that they had, you know, Making of a Murderer. And I, I am proud to say, Stephen Avery, I am proud to say that I, I never I never watched Making a Murderer. It just, just never, never saw it at all, never bought into the hype. And as somebody who watched that trial closely, I, there, there's no question in my mind, Stephen Avery is guilty as, as you know what. And so watching some revisionist documentary really didn't have much appeal. I guess I, th- this is the same sort of thing, and, and I'm sure it's probably going to be successful. But, you know, of all the different individuals that you, you can do documentaries about, why in the world do you pick th- this child molester? You know, why why do you pick him? I mean, just think of all the different stuff that's out there. So, I mean, people can decide to to do it or not. Obviously, Discovery Plus hopes this is going to be a big deal and hopes people will pay to stream it. Now, I I like Discovery. I watch Gold Rush and things like that on TV, but there's no way I'm getting Discovery Plus simply to watch a documentary series about Jared from Subway to find out how he was able to fool people for so many years while he was, in fact, a child molester. But if you're interested in Jared, well... You're going to have a chance March 6th at debuts on Discovery+. Plus. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, Sierra Mist. I'll explain. We'll discuss. We're going to save Nikki Haley for tomorrow because I want to talk about Sierra Mist in the last few minutes of the program. Um, I, I always I always kind of smile when I think about Sierra Mist because my, my late wife did, did not drink alcohol. Um, she just didn't like the taste of it. But so we would go out and she would always order sodas and she would always order. She liked Sprite and she'd order Sprite. And sometimes people would say, well, we have Sierra Mist. And then she'd say no, because she really didn't like Sierra Mist because and she was in Sierra Mist. She was in, in good company because Sierra Mist was a Pepsi product. They came out with it in 1999 because they wanted to go after a 7-Up and the Coke product, Sprite. That that was the idea. Before that, they, they Pepsi made this lemon-lime drink called Slice, if you might remember that. So then they came out with Sierra Mist, and Sierra Mist kind of floundered really, really badly. It never took off. In 2015, they, they renamed it um, Mist Twist, but it... It was the same old Sierra Mist and, and never took off. And then um, uh, last month, they, they stopped making it. They, they essentially said, okay, we're, we're giving up on, on Sierra Mist. So what they've come out with is they've come out with a new product that is geared to Gen Z, talking about our Zoomers again. And this, is, this stuff is called Starry, S-T-A-R-R-Y. And it's the, the Pepsi lemon-lime drink. Well, Washington Post has a, has a story about this, and they, they did this taste test, and you, you know what they, they found? They found that, okay, Starry, the new Pepsi product, it doesn't taste like, like Sierra Mist. You know what it tastes like? It said it tastes exactly like Sprite, that this is clearly a, a I'm using the phrase ripoff. I mean, maybe the ingredients are different, but they say this is clearly, you, you will not, they do these blind taste tests, and they can't tell the difference between Coca-Cola's Sprite product, which is very, very popular, and th- this new Starry product that's it's not Sierra Mist, but it's, it's their new competitor. And they're hoping, because they're going to be able to come out with new packaging, they are going to be able to cut into the, the people who didn't like Sierra Mist and are, are drinking 7-Up or they're drinking Sprite. Um, 
our number, we only have a few minutes, 855-616-1620. That is the um, Old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, Pepsi tried to go after Sprite and 7-Up with Sierra Mist. They tried it for, you know, uh, again, going on like 20-some years. It was a huge failure. So now they're apparently coming out with a new product that is very, very similar in taste to Sprite, hoping that that's going to get Sprite drinkers to drink it. 855-616-1620. Sometimes, don't you just have to know when to hold them and and know when to fold them and recognize that maybe these lemon-lime drinks, maybe maybe that's just not what you do well. 855-616-1620. Will you be bailing on Sprite or 7-Up to try... The latest thing from Pepsi, in this case, they call it Starry. And if you were one of the handful of people out there who really like Sierra Mist, are you disappointed that, that that's gone by the wayside? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Um, let's see, Jeff. For me, it's 7-Up. Eight-pack 7-Up bottles and the very cool opener. I love it. Well, I think, you know, 7-Up is well-established. That's a great brand. And, of course, Sprite, you know, you're dealing with Coca-Cola. And we talked about this a while back. Just like, um, just like for me, you know, Diet Coke is such a far superior product to Diet Pepsi to the point that, you know, if you go to these places and they say, you know, Diet Pepsi and that's your choice, I, I pass on it because it's just – it, it's just, it's not something that I choose to have. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Jeff, nothing else is 7-Up. Um, Jeff, they need something for Pepsi-only restaurants, um, like something that is lemon, lime, and caffeine-free. Well, yeah, I understand why you might need something for that, but the problem is if what you have isn't something that you like, what are you going to end up doing that? Jeff, um, let's see. I um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, um, it's much Starry is much cheaper than Sprite and tastes exactly like it. You can get it at Pick and Save. Well, I don't know about the much cheaper thing. Maybe they're discounting it to get people to do it. But, yeah, that's what the Washington Post says. Their reviewers say it is a, it's a ripoff of Sprite. It, it, they say it, it, however they've done it, it, it clearly it doesn't resemble Sierra Mist at all. It tastes like, it tastes like uh, Sprite. So, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe they're in a situation where, um, maybe they're they're again they're, they're trying to just kind of lure people on price alone but if you're wondering where this stuff came from if you're wondering what this story is well story is sierra mist except it's not sierra mist it's the latest effort that pepsi has to try to get you away from seven up and to try to get you away from um sprite i'm color me cautious i just I think people's soda choices are, you know, pretty much ingrained. I I doubt that that's going to happen. Jeff, I preferred Sierra Mist, but I'm not a big soda drinker, so I wasn't keeping in business with my purchases. It's definitely a different taste now. Yeah, compare it to Sprite, and you're going to see it's pretty much the same thing. No question about it. Okay. You can try Starry if you want, but it might be fun. Try it next to Sprite. See if you can tell the difference. Washington Post says no.